0: You're with Austin Blanco at the Austin Blanco podcast. Today, I'm with Ken Ledwith. Ken is a 83 years old. Is that right? 84. 84. 84 84-year-old pilot, uh, airworthiness inspector, A&P, father of two, and my next-door neighbor at the airport. At the hangar, yeah. So I have roped Ken into an interview because I'm fascinated about your background. I'm absolutely fascinated about your background. So I'm hoping to learn more about how you ended up in Lincoln, how you ended up as the most hardworking guy that I know really anywhere. I mean, you show up before I do. You stay after I leave when I'm out here busting my hump to work on my plane. You're always here. You're always working and no one holds I, a candle. I
1: need effort. to, I need to get a life. <laughs>
2: I mean, it's it's fascinating. So, I mean, first tell me about your background. Where'd you grow up?
1: I was born in South San Francisco and uh, grew up in Burlingame, California. Went to Burlingame High School and uh, San Mateo Junior College, College of San Mateo, and then uh, went in the Navy for four years and flew there, and then uh, got out, went back to school at San Jose State, and then uh, flew for United. 32 and a half years
2: I mean that's pretty condensed what was it like growing up in San Francisco
1: South San Francisco excuse me me. (laughs) the industrial city Uh, actually I grew up in but I did a lot of work there it it was uh, a lot of Italians there good people and uh, I just worked in automobile machine shops stuff like that
2: right on were you always interested in airplanes yeah yeah
1: okay I had an uncle who was a, a War II pilot, and uh, I did a lot of work for him and his shop. so uh, he sort of was my mentor
2: on that. Right on. And so you grew up in an age when a lot of the World War II pilots, they had come back and kind of were just getting into raising kids and having family life, right?
1: Yeah, I was lucky. Uh, not only my, my uncle, but uh, in my Navy squadron and, and also... Uh, at United, I flew a lot of War Two guys, and they're the most humble guys I ever flew with. Wow. They're all very
2: competent guys.
1: Good, good people to be around. A lot of fun. I can imagine.
2: Yeah. So, growing up in high school, did you play sports?
1: Uh, swimming. That's it. I was too small for anything else, and you know. uh. Once I got of age, driving and everything, I, I always had jobs. So that precluded me from spending much time in sports after that.
2: Right on. And so as soon as you started working, did you stay in the more mechanical side? I mean, that, that's where you were driven?
1: <coughs> Outside of uh, cleaning up a butcher shop for a couple of years, yeah, I was on the mechanical side.
2: What was that like?
1: Uh, it was a steady six, seven-day job, day job, day job. Uh, job working every night in uh, the Saturday night or Sunday morning, i have to clean up because you know, they are closed Sunday.
2: Right on. Ooh, so you're it, cleaning was up hard, the... it was hard work. This is the butcher shop?
1: Yep, buck and a quarter an hour. Wow. All the uh, blowing I could eat.
2: Wow. <laughs> okay. So you're going to high school, though, in the daytime, and then you're working at the butcher shop at night.
1: Yeah, or shop up in South San Francisco.
2: Okay, so you're getting out of school like what three something yeah, like that. Correct. Okay, and how late at night would you work?
1: Uh, the butcher shop to about eight, and uh, then the other shop
2: about six or so. Okay, right on. So, any girlfriends? Oh, uh, are a few along the way. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody serious though. Nobody's serious. Right on. So, so you you're swimming. You're hanging out, you're working your butt off, you're going to school. And what year did you graduate? High school, 54. 54. All right. And so what compelled you? Did you know you wanted to go into the Navy, and did you know you wanted to go aviation? Or what compelled you to go that direction?
1: I wanted to be a pilot, so I, I applied for uh, the, the, the cadet program for the Air Force and the Navy. And I applied for the uh, Air Force first, and then I... Waited about a month, and they didn't call me, so I applied for the Navy. And the Navy called me, and they're saying, no, oh, I'm down in Pensacola.
2: Wow. And so this is high school right in and flying?
1: No, I had two years of college. Okay. And the Navy put you through college? No, no.
2: I did that before.
1: Okay. They, they uh, wanted a couple years of college.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so... You, so you knew you were going to go into the Navy and did you make a college decision based on that or were you just kind of in college and trying to figure out what to do or what?
1: In college, trying to figure out what to do. I, I also joined the Naval Reserve. Uh, I was there for a couple of years, so I sort of knew what military life was like. The weekend warrior thing. And so, you know, I, I knew pretty much what I was getting into.
2: Okay. Okay. And so two years in school, just you went for the basic classes?
1: Yeah, got lousy grades. Yeah.
2: Just enough to pass, right? Uh, barely. Yeah. Okay. And so so you get through school, and then you're off to, what, flight school or basic training Pensacola?
1: No, they go uh, right into flight school, but you have uh, four months of basic training Okay. at Pensacola in your... You're at uh, NAS Pensacola. They call it Mainside. You did all your classwork, physical stuff. And then after four months of that, then you went to a flight training. Or went to another field and started flight
2: training. Okay. But that was all in Florida. All in Florida. Really. And so what was the first plane that you got to fly? T-34. Right on. Okay. the Mentor. All right. Cool. And so... You're flying the T-34, dodging thunderstorms in the afternoons? No, I don't remember that, but uh, it
1: was fun. <laughs> it was stressful.
2: Yeah. What was flight instruction like in the Navy? I mean, did, did they give you a lot of ground before they put you up, or was it?
1: Uh, you'd have ground school in the morning one week and fly in the afternoon, and then they'd switch it the next week. So you uh, they had you all day, Yeah. you yeah. The whole 18 months through flight training that uh, pretty much live, eat, breathe, flying. That's all you did.
2: Yeah. What was your, did you find, did you find any of that enjoyable or, uh, yeah, not I, met,
1: <laughs> I met a lot of good guys and, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun there, but it was stressful because you're, it uh, was between the Korean War and Vietnam War so they didn't need pilots mm-hmm. <clears throat> so they'd have these purges where they'd uh, go through and anybody who had a grade point average of or flight grade point average of below say 2.85 they kick you out and uh, wow then, yeah. so they didn't have a war they didn't really they had enough pilots
2: so you were trying to stay on top of the bubble
1: yeah that was stressful
2: and now, was this on a curve, or was this just, hey, if you either make it or you, that's it? Either
1: make it. it, it the one cutoff, used, as I remember, it was always 2.85 yeah. on a scale of 4. Okay. So you'd go, this is before we had calculators. So uh, you'd go and, and look at your flight records, and, and the instructor give you a 3 for this and a 2 for that and a 4 for that. and add them all up, average them out, and then you get your grade point average and say, okay, I'm above 2.75 and I'm home free or whatever.
2: My gosh.
1: So they kind uh one of the fields we are at barren Field, uh, they're having a purge, so they, they told us that uh, they are got to let 14 guys go We all got in the auditorium there telling us that, and they said, but we need 14 guys in blimps, and nobody wanted to go to blimps. So you always scurry down there, figure out your grade point average, and they got their 14 guys. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Wow. What would you do with a blimp back then? Because, I mean, there wasn't a lot of – Well, I guess Moffat had a couple of blimp hangers, right? Yeah. Okay.
1: No, they they flew them through – Early 60s. Right Logistics or observation? Just observation. But nobody wanted to fly them. Yeah, I wonder why. But now, you're a blimp pilot, everybody looks up to you say, ah, oh, that'd be pretty cool.
2: Yeah. But at the time, nobody wanted to do it. That's interesting. Wow, um, I remember they had the uh, uh, the Zeppelin or the dirigible. um Flying, was that Air, Airship Ventures or something like that? Was over flying out of San Carlos. Or well, it was flying out of Moffitt, uh back in what, 2008 or 9? Mm-hmm. Just for a little while. And they would do dinners in the sunset. And then, oh, yeah? Yeah. And then bring you back down. But uh, it was obviously not a good business plan because it only lasted a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. But it was novel for me to be, you know, you take off out of San Carlos and then uh, the tower would say, you know, uh, traffic. You know, three o'clock dirigible. You know, like you know, if I can't see this thing, yeah, <laughs> you're very given up. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Man, that's crazy. So you survived. You survived the bubble. You didn't get chopped, and you get through basic flight training. Now, were you doing what kind of flying were you doing? It was just basic land nav, maintenance, maintenance of the engine, stuff like that. Just don't yeah. run out of gas, don't crash. Yeah, yeah.
1: This forty hours. Okay. So I think it'd be the equivalent of a private pilot license, I guess.
2: Did you do any sort of um, instrument work? No, oh, just basic. Okay. And any sort of like combat related work? No. Okay. Yeah. And so... No formation. Either. Nothing like that. Yeah. So you get out and you're basically a VFR standard kind of pilot, basic understanding of how not to crash. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And so what happens next?
1: Uh, next thing I went to uh, softly field and uh, checked out in the SNJ for my basic training. T thirty four was a primary. Okay. And so the SNJ, which is a Air Force T six, was uh, the next step.
2: So that that's now you're flying around engine. It's a bigger bird. Yeah. Okay. Are they that much faster?
1: No. Yeah, they're faster, but it's it's a whole different airplane. What makes it different? The tail wheel and the power.
2: Oh, yeah, that's right. It's a tail yeah. dragger. Okay.
1: And it's an airplane that uh, a lot of fun to fly, but it keeps your attention.
2: Yeah. Stay on the rudder. Yeah. Yeah. It was a fun airplane. Right on. Do you have any trouble with it? No. Felt pretty good. Yeah. Okay. So now and are you doing tail are you practicing for any sort of carrier landings? Are you doing tail hook operations with that thing? I didn't it do hook,
1: tail or? hook operations till it pants Okay.
2: So in this you're learning this plane. What else did you what else did you do with that plane?
1: Well we did basic instruments in it. We did uh, formation, two place, four place formation, acrobatics. Right on. I can't think of whatever we did it was about 90 hours
2: okay 90 or 100 hours i forget how much right on so this is a lot more flying bigger airplane more torque yeah more fun yeah. what'd you guys do on the weekends
1: uh go down pensacola we had about four bars we hung out at so it was it was fun yeah that was the best part yeah. <laughs> But, you know, the guys, uh, some of the guys washed out for uh, cheating. You remember an officer and a gentleman. Mm -hmm. The guys that cheated got kicked out. I had uh, three Marines in my class that did the exact same thing, and they disappeared. Wow. So anyway, you know, the guys drop out for... Cheating in academics, so they can't cut the academics. Or swimming, swimming got a bunch of people. Really? Yeah, they're pretty, pretty heavy on swimming. And then just uh, the flight training, you know, guys drop out here and there.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how many people go into the Navy or, like in my experience, in the Marine Corps that don't know how to swim. And you're thinking, like, you do know? <laughs> where yeah, you're going they, right. <laughs> they had a hard time. Yeah, it blew my mind that people would never swam a day in their life. I'm going to join the Marine Corps. Yeah. (laughs) You you, you know, we spent a lot of time in the water, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So on the weekends, you guys just, you'd hang out at the bar, and then did you have a specific, like, were you living off base?
1: Oh, no. it was, as a cadet, you, you lived on base the whole 18 months. Whatever base you're at. Usually four to a room. The barracks. So
2: you're pretty much stuck on the base during the week. Yeah. Okay.
1: And Saturday morning says you always screw up somewhere along the line. So the Marine drill sergeants put you out on the grinder with a rifle for four hours.
2: And then go back to cleaning it.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Keeping you out of trouble. Yeah interesting okay so how long did it take to get through that training
1: 18 months okay which is the standard time frame is 18 months
2: for the navy flight training. for that evolution yeah. so you're doing four for your primary you're doing 18 for your basic but this is your you did sorry four months for basic training we're not even flying
1: no, that's all academics and, and uh,
2: physical stuff. And then was it six months for the primary flight training?
1: No, it's it, uh, pretty much when you finish the syllabus, which wound up to be about 40 hours.
2: Okay. And that took, well, that took a couple months, or at least yeah. a couple months, that, right? And then you've got your 18 months?
1: Well, after... Yeah, four months pre flight, a couple months primary, and uh, about three or four months uh, basic. And then we, in my, my case, I went to uh, uh, Mobile, Alabama, in, uh, which is pretty close to Penn School, and flew the SNB, which is a twin beach okay, for instruments. And then when you got done, you got your instrument rating. Uh, that's about a year. Okay. And then I went to uh, Corpus Christi and started flying the S2F, which is the uh, airplane, the fire, CAL FIRE uses yeah. to fight the fire. It's a twin-engine one, except it had uh, the radial engine. So,
2: Yeah. And at the time, it was used for sub-observation, right? Correct. Anti-sub-ops.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you could carry a torpedo in the bomb Bay and it also had uh solo boys and rockets. It's pretty well equipped airplane.
2: Right on. So you're, but you're three years, you're about three years, two and a half of training before your operation. No, year and a half. year and a half. year and a half. Okay. So that whole package is a year and a half. So a year and a half they take you from, you got two years of college. You come in a year and a half later, you're flying a sub hunting aircraft off of a carrier. I did a little carrier work, not much. Okay, so you're an instrument-rated, multi-engine pilot flying off carriers in a year and a half.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's
2: a lot of flying, man. That was
1: good. Yeah. So they they sent me out to Hawaii where I flew constellations for a couple years. Okay. Then I got out.
2: Okay. What made you get out?
1: Uh... We had a lot of War Two guys in the squadron, and all uh, I knew most of them pretty well. And I asked them, "Would you stay in if you had to do it over again?" And they said, "No." Yeah. So I decided I'd get
2: out. Well, there wasn't a war going on. No
1: war going on, and uh, so I went back to school and got my college degree. Right on. What would you get your degree in? Uh, business. Okay. Where'd you go to school? San they
2: State. Right on. That's where I got the A&P license. Okay. And did you do that part of your degree?
1: Yeah. Okay. And the reason I got the A&P license was I, my uncle and I bought the Luskin, it was a wreck, yeah. and and the FAA said that uh, you didn't have a license, you shouldn't rebuild it. So uh, they had the license at San Jose State, so I decided to get it.
2: You figure you're already going to school, take some classes, and... Right on. So you're a newly minted a How many flight hours did you have by the time you got out of the Navy? A couple thousand, a little under 2,000. Okay. And were you doing a lot of, did you do deployments?
1: Well, mostly we were in Hawaii, so uh, we, we'd go to Midway Island. We had the radar counties, the ones with the domes on them. So we'd fly out of Midway Island. Wow. And then after I ended, uh, but I was also able to fly the Twin Beach between the islands, hmm. so that was fun. And then when I uh, got out of the Navy, went back to school. I joined the reserves at Alameda and flew the S two f there. Okay. For a while, and then I, I took one summer and uh, went back to uh, Pensacola and got checked out in helicopters. So you're a so I flew bird pilot, yeah you? so I flew that for a few years till I finally got out of the navy completely.
2: What kind? Of, what kind of helicopters at the time?
1: I uh, started out in the Bell and then the Sikorskys up to the H uh, thirty four, which is uh, one of the bigger piston engine helicopters. You use a lot of them in in uh, Vietnam. The Marines use them
0: mm-hmm.
1: mostly.
2: That was, yeah, that was a round, that was a round engine, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. That's crazy. So, so you're now you're rotary rated. Were you married? Did you get married along the way? No, I got out of service. I did, yeah. Out, out of active duty? Correct. Okay. So you get out of college, you're married, chopper pilot, A&P, instrument rated, Navy pilot, you're out of the Navy, you got a couple thousand hours. What's next? United Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> and so you for you, is just aviation was always the thing. Yeah. Okay. Did you ever entertain anything else? Not at that period, no. Right on. And was the wife cool with this? Yeah. Okay. That was part of the selection of the wife process? Yeah, that was criteria. Yeah,
1: yeah. Right on. And any
2: kids at that point? No, I didn't have kids. So uh, second wife. Right on. So, so now you apply for United, and at the time was this a lot of pe- a lot of applicants? Were there a lot of pilots trying to? I mean, because you have you're fighting against World War Two guys, right, and Korea guys.
1: Yeah. Uh it was before the big hiring curve. Hiring big, hiring curve came in uh, middle of 65, so I hired on the middle of 64. Okay. And then they started ramping up
2: a few months after that. What was the cause of that, just economics?
1: Uh, the airlines were expanding, they are getting jets, and the guys
2: are starting to retire too. Right on. So you go in, you've got piston time. At that point, did you have turbine time? No. No turbine time.
1: You okay. know, United started you out there. There's a flight, is here on the DC six, DC seven. Okay. So flew that for about a year and a half, and then got on the twenty seven and worked up the seats on that.
2: Wow. Okay. Okay. So that's a four engine plane.
1: motor, No, Tri-motor. seven seven twenty seven.
2: Oh, seven twenty seven. Got gotcha. you. That's the one with the rear air stair, right? Correct. That's yeah. Okay. Okay, that's the one that, uh, oh, what's that guy's name? D.B. Jump- Cooper. There you go, Cooper. Cooper. Yeah, jumped the back. Yeah, right on. Okay. So, and so, how long did it take to get to the point where you were right seating on that? Or is this point, you left seating?
1: It took about uh, a year and a half when I was right seat on, on uh 727, no, two years, because I started out engineer on DC-6, then I became an engineer on the 727, then a DC-6 co-pilot, then back to the 27 as a
2: co-pilot. Right on. So you're getting into, it's the late 60s now? Yeah. Okay. And so we're about to put a man on the moon. We're getting close to that, right? Yeah. That was 71, right?
1: Sixty nine. Right? Yeah, somewhere. Around
2: there. Yeah, I always forget if they made the end of the decade or not. Remember, that was oh, a... he
1: said, 10, yeah, that was 61. Yeah. who said that. Yeah. yeah.
2: OK. And so at that point, were you flying national or international or all? No, the... all domestic. All domestic. OK. Right on. And so is it is it similar then to how it is now in terms of the hub and spoke system or was it different?
1: No, they didn't have the hub and spoke to the extent they do now. Okay, and they didn't have uh, TCAs for a while, and they, it was nice. You know, they, it was it was pretty loose.
2: Yeah, kind of just roll in. And yeah, drop, drop those stairs. Yeah, and... yeah. well, in the DC
1: Six was better than that. Yeah. yeah, but different time, different place. Yeah, interesting.
2: Yeah, because I mean, I know my grandpa used to fly out of Stockton. And that was like a big hub. Yeah, no,
1: I I flew the 27 uh, in Stockton quite a bit.
2: Interesting. Yeah, it's just fascinating because now, you know, you think, oh, it's Sac Metro or SFO or LAX. You know, there's not really some of the smaller airports, just the majors don't reach them, really.
1: No, they don't. Yeah.
2: Interesting. So at that point, you're chewing around in twins, still round engines though, right? So, and, and you're married and you're living in San Francisco? Belmont. So you're living in Belmont, right? Yeah. And you're flying out of SFO primarily or? Yep. Okay. So this is a major United hub anyway. Yeah. Okay.
1: Good at 20 minutes.
2: Yeah. So now, okay, by this time, have you had any in-flight emergencies? Or I should say how many in-flight <laughs> emergencies?
1: No, I, I had a number three engine on the 727 uh, let loose over uh, Knoxville, Tennessee one afternoon. But that's about all.
2: Nothing real serious. Just that? Just that. What would you do? Just shut it down and keep going? We
1: just shut down and we decided uh, Bob Bill Smith was a captain. I was flying the airplane and he said, oh, you broke it, you fly it, you know, so we are trying to decide should we go, it was Friday afternoon, I remember, should we go to Atlanta or go to Memphis, which is our destination. And, uh, so we decided we'd go to Memphis because there's too much traffic in Atlanta, even though it was closer. Yeah. So we landed there and they had the mechanics waiting for us and uh, I got up on a belt loader with one of them, and the engine had pretty well cleaned itself out, and it uh, went through the, the blades went through the case, of the engine and the, nacelle, uh, and also the vertical fin. Jeez. Well, it's was pretty, pretty good, build break up, unscheduled disassembly. Yeah. So it was funny because they, two marines came up. They're sitting on the back of the airplane, and uh, one of the Marines says, "Which engine was it?" And we said, "Number three. And he turned around to his buddy and says, "Pay up!" So nice. They had a they had a bet, which engine had had blown. So
2: oh, that's great. Was this kind of a common occurrence in these aircraft? No, the the jets were really uh, very reliable. Yeah, but you're flying around a whole bunch of. You know, radials and pistons and things flying all over the place, but you never had a never threw a rod or had a, had a no a couple of starters off. and everything. Uh,
1: <clears throat> when I was flying a DC six. United still overhauled their own engines mm-hmm. at the maintenance space, and yeah. uh, they did an excellent job. You rarely had problems with the engines.
2: Well, you flying them all
1: the time, and then uh, then they closed down them. The overhaul shop for the pistons, farmed it out to Pacific Air Motive at the time, and then we started having a few problems. Yeah, but what as Longs as United did it—they—they they did a good job. Hmm.
2: I can imagine the shop had a vested interest in high-quality turn.
1: Well, I—I I worked as an apprentice mill metal mechanic uh, one summer, summer of '63 at United, and. So I was pretty familiar with this shop, and it's pretty extensive. It complete teardowns and rebuilds. Good mechanics, sir.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because they they figure probably I'll outsource it and save a buck, but then you probably lose all that profit the minute you have a plane go down when a better repair would have saved yeah. that flight. You no. Know.
1: Yeah, but they were. They're phasing the pistons out, so, you know, going to the jets and and they're much
2: more reliable. Yeah. I had a uh, camera company that I work for that they made these low-light scientific cameras. Mm -hmm. And they decided they would save a lot of money if they moved the manufacturing from Tucson, Arizona to uh, Canada but they didn't realize the cost associated with getting through customs. So it wasn't actually the getting through part or like the legality or taxation issues. It was the simple fact that if you ship something, it sat on one side until the customs person would get, you know, uh, get around to dealing with it or however this worked. And then it would go to the other side and then whoever had to work on it on that side would get around to making it work. And then finally it would go to wherever it needs to go. So there's this huge delay, right? (laughs) And so then they ended up like finding a way to do this where they drove it across. So they had like an official courier full-time with two locations to drive this thing back and forth across the border, you know, all these shipments. So in the end they saved, you know, 20 bucks a unit on these products and then cost $400 a unit in shipping costs, (laughs) you know, and move the manufacturing away from the marketing group. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're having problems with these cameras and we can't figure out why and you know so it's funny how that stuff works so okay so now you're flying for United you're flying regionals staying staying local and so how long did you that for?
1: I did that till I I switched airplanes a couple times through the DC-10 as a co-pilot, then flew the uh, 757, 767 as a captain for a while, and then I, I got on the 47, the Rope start, the old ones, mm-hmm. and then I started flying the uh, Europe, or
2: mostly, a little bit Orient, but mostly Europe. And where were you flying out of? San Francisco the whole time. Would you straight shot it?
1: Uh, yeah, you'd straight shot it over to uh, London. Okay. Or Paris or
2: Germany. Right on. So you're doing Heathrow, you're doing uh, Charles de Gaulle and Frankfurt. Yep, all that. Wow. Wow.
1: So then after that, I got on the 400. And uh, that was basically all Orient stuff. It was a wet. I'm sorry? All Orient. Okay. Far East. Yeah. They'd send you out on, say, a four- or five-day trip. And uh, usually you'd go from here to Narita, which is Tokyo, and and then you'd lay over, and then you'd go to, say, Bangkok, come back, then come back home, or go to Singapore. Or sometimes you flew from San Fran to Taipei to Bangkok. Or you'd go to Seoul or the Philippines. You
2: had a good variety of trips. Did they give you a decent time uh, where you had an opportunity to get around and, like, hang out at wherever you are going? Yeah,
1: each layover was about 25 hours. Okay. So you could go do things. From you know, particularly London, it's really good because, you except you'd get in at, at about 6 or 7 in the morning, you're beat, but you want to go see the museums and everything, so that yeah. wipes you out a little bit.
2: Yeah, you kind of get so then you go out and see the museum, and now you're super tired, and yeah, Yeah. basically you lose a day of sleep or a night of sleep. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so, how long did you do this for?
1: About the last six and a half years, I flew with United.
2: Wow. So this brings you up into the mid '70s.
1: No, no, we're in the '90s now. Oh, the
2: '90s. So you okay? So you're flying for United for like thirty years. Yeah. Right on.
1: Yeah, thirty-two.
2: Wow. And the only. So, out of all that time flying, how many hours did you fly for them? You figured, uh, probably twenty five. I am thinking.
1: Wow, I like gave up. Like most guys, yeah. you you give up log. You know, putting stuff in the logbook it's too tedious. You know, you get your time sheets each month, so you got to look at what you did. You can look at that.
2: Yeah, yeah, but I mean, so you just have a, some stupid amount of flight time. Yeah, I mean. 25,000 hours. I don't think... So, I, the best I was doing was 300 a year. That's right? a
1: lot. Yeah. If you're doing it for yourself.
2: Yeah. But still, I mean, <clears throat> it's going to take 10 years to get 3,000 hours. I mean, there's like literally, I could not fly for 20 years and catch catch up to that flight time.
1: Most of the guys I maintain their airplanes for here, they're lucky if they get 20 hours a year.
2: That's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, wow. And so at the time you're you're flying, you had to be flying more like six to seven hundred hours a year. I mean, you're spending a substantial amount of your life midair.
1: Yeah, you do. You're away from home a lot. You miss uh, you miss holidays, family gatherings, all sorts of stuff that eight to fiber shape for granted. It's a nomadic life. It's a good life. I enjoy it. Yeah. I particularly like the fact that even flying domestic, you went to work and you got out of town. You went somewhere else.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Leave the problems behind. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right on. And so along the way, wife number one doesn't work out. So then get remarried. And it was that. While you were still flying with United,
1: yeah, that was '91, uh, the end of '91. She was a chief purser flying out of Bangkok, flight okay. attendant. right on. So she had to talk to me since I was the boss, and so she had she had to coordinate everything through me.
2: Wow! So you kind of just got now to know she's each other. the boss. Yeah, oh. now she's in charge, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, but you got to know each other at work, and you'd see her every time you flew in?
1: Well, no, she flew uh, out of mm-hmm. Bangkok, so she flew uh, usually the bangkok Taipei trip or Narita, or sometimes a Seoul trip, we started crossing the paths. Right on.
2: Finally worked out. Hang out a little bit more before you know it. Yeah. Yeah. And was she, at the time, though, she's living in Japan or no she's living in Bangkok she's living in Bangkok and so did what how did you guys decide where who's going to move where
1: well we uh we got married and we stayed over here till retirement in the end of 96 and then we moved over to Thailand for five years
2: right on what was that like great I don't want to go back there yeah (laughs) yeah Right on. What was, like, the biggest thing for you that you enjoyed the most?
1: Well, see, we have a place, still have a place there uh, on the beach in uh, Jom Pien, which is actually Padilla, south of southeast of Bangkok, a couple hours. And, uh, you know, it's walking distance to the beach out in the condo we have there. You can look out, see the beach, and uh, it's it's good beach, water's warm, and uh, the beer's cold, and the vendors come by with food and whatever you want. It,
2: it's just a nice place.
1: Restaurants are good.
2: Yeah. Just kind of hang out. Don't have to worry about much. No, and it's, it's much less expensive. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. That's nice.
1: And Bangkok's a good city live in too. Yeah. So a lot of good restaurants, nightlife, and good shopping, so...
2: So when you were there, were you officially You were officially retired. Yeah. Okay. And so this is mid nineties. You're out of United. This What'd you is do the late nineties. Late nineties. Okay. What you do all day?
1: Well, yeah, we had the kids. Kevin was uh, three, and Tina was uh, one. Or actually, oh, okay. so we put them in school. So yeah. we had time to ourselves, and. Because we wanted the kids to learn the language and the culture, which they did. And then uh, when Kevin was five, I came back with him, and then we bounced back and forth because there's their school vacations are opposite our school vacations. So, hmm. you know, we still spend a lot of time, about 50% of the time in, in each country, but we're doing a lot of traveling,
2: hmm. doing it. Right on. Did you guys mostly travel like to like China or, or Japan or were you going towards Europe or?
1: No, we we just go back and forth to Thailand. Oh yeah, right. yeah, that's whole okay. plate. Yeah, but when uh, Christina uh, was five years old, we brought her back here for kindergarten. Um, so we pretty well stayed here since. Okay. So you
2: moved back home to uh, Berlin game or?
1: Uh, well, we no we yeah. Uh, what was it, 97 we came up here, so, yeah, we uh we built a house in Granite Bay and moved in in November of 97, and then we moved to Thailand for five years. Wow. So I'd come back every couple months or so and put up grapes and stuff. I'd bring, uh, usually I'd bring Christina because she wasn't in school yet. Kevros in school, so get the house all set up, and uh, we'd come back for about a month to live in it, and then go back to Thailand and bounce back and forth. Hmm. Then after uh, Christina got to be five years old, then she went to school here, so we we used to go back every summer for a couple months, but uh, lately we haven't, I haven't been back in four years.
2: Well, and, you know, covid yeah, right. <laughs> we're, not, we're
1: planning going back first, right after the first.
2: Excellent. Okay. Cool. So you end up living back here full-time, and then along the way, I'm assuming, you get your AMP out of college, out of your second round of college, and then when did you get at your IA? Uh,
1: I got the IA
2: five years ago. From now? Yeah. Okay. So you had a lot of wrench turning time before you got that.
1: Yeah, I uh, I got it because I I always had to go to other people to get them to sign off my work, and I got tired of paying them and yeah. do it yourself. Um, yeah, I want a little more
2: autonomy. But did you know? I mean, when you because you and you've got two airplanes that you built behind us, and so when did you have time to do that?
1: You know,
2: well, I started
1: that a long time ago, the, yeah.
2: the Mustang. Mustang, okay. Yeah, the
1: post-speed Mustang. That one I started uh, probably in the 70s, and so it went on the back burner every now and then for, uh, depending on my job and whatever crisis presented itself in life. And so it wasn't until the last I got... In the late 90s i really got on and decided i'd get a going so
2: i got a going in 2009 okay so. so at that point did you when how long was it between or i guess the thing i'm always curious about with builds like that this was not a kit this is straight plans straight plans and yeah. you hand cut and this thing's all aluminum yep except for the wing tips that's yeah plastic or whatever
1: yeah, the, the only, uh,
2: the cowl was all a little Wow. And, so you hand cut and bent every rib, hand cut every Uh,
1: no, the, the, uh, wing ribs I, I got made of. Okay, but you gave somebody a
2: design and? Yeah. Okay, had them stamp them or whatever.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> but everything else is handmade. It's a straight wing? Uh, or is a tapered?
2: yeah, it's a tapered wing. It's a tapered wing. Yeah. Wow. And it's got a folding wing design, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, I have to rent another hanger. Exactly. And then you've got, and this is the Luscombe. Now, is this the one that you and your dad worked on? No, my uncle, uncle and I did it. Okay. This is the one? This is the one. Okay. So you've had this airplane for 50 years? Uh, do the math 62. Yeah. 40, 60
1: years, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> no, Kevin got his <clears throat> my son got his private in that and then my daughter got her commercial in it. This year sometime, July. I was gonna say recently. No, right? it, it had to be about April because
2: she's flame instructing now. So Yeah. And your son's also flying, right? Yeah. So you guys are a flying family. Yeah. Now, does the wife go flying with you at all?
1: No, I, I uh, decided about six months ago I was going to quit flying. Hang it up, let the
2: kids fly around? Yeah,
1: let the kids fly around. It's too hard to get in and out of the airplane. Yeah, yeah. The airplane's getting smaller and I'm getting bigger. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I can see that happening.
1: I, I don't have time to be remain proficient, so yeah. I decide to let the
2: kids fly. Well, and besides, if there's anybody I know that probably has done it enough to satisfy that desire. I'd say you qualify.
1: Yeah, no, I've done enough of that. Yeah, so,
2: yeah. And
1: it's, it's satisfying to watch my kids progress.
2: I can imagine. Particularly yeah.
1: Christina, she's she's doing good. By uh, 2 o'clock this afternoon, she already had three flight lessons. Wow. So That's you amazing. flew a... Uh, Cherokee 140, Cessna 150, and a Cherokee 180. Wow. Tomorrow she's going to fly a Cessna 182 and something
2: else. She's busy. And she's working as a flight instructor full-time. Yeah. And for I noticed that COVID, it seems like people realized flying on the airlines was kind of rough, right? It's kind of from the golden era when you were flying to today, it's been kind of a constant reduction, I would say, in the experience for the passengers, right? And then, of course, nine eleven had a big impact on that. And yeah. I mean, I remember going through that. And uh, even as a kid, I, I mean, in the early 80s, I remember going to the Sacramento airport and I could go on the flight deck and I, I actually weaseled my way onto a flight deck and uh, one of the pilots let me sit down and play with the controls of the plane and then he gave me like a little set of wings. Yeah, <laughs> that was a cardinal moment in my life. I will never forget yeah. that, you know.
1: Well, it used to be a, um, a DC-6 who didn't even have a door. Yeah. Just had a curtain. Yeah. And on charters, you know, you'd let the guys come up, you know, baseball players or whatever, look at the cockpit. But that's
2: no more now. Big difference now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I remember 9-11 kind of made things to, a pain in the butt, right? And then... Obviously, COVID kind of makes it more of a pain in the butt, and I've noticed that, I mean, just in the last year, flight training around here has exploded. I think more and more people are exploring small aircraft as a way of getting around.
1: Yeah, a friend of mine just became a flight instructor the other day, and he's got eight students yeah. already.
2: That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. I my,
1: remember... da- my daughter's got eight or ten, and, and that's just word of mouth. She doesn't. She's not advertising?
2: No, she works for herself. Wow. Wow. So she's not under anybody else. She's just freelancing, which is great. Yeah, she's starting her own business. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah.
1: You should interview her. Okay. Well, I got another She's interested. Yeah.
2: Interesting little lady. Hmm. Well, you got to be proud. I mean, it's so funny because even now my kid's being young, you know, you kind of wonder, you see things in them and you go... Is this going to be the thing that kind of sets them on a a very positive trajectory? Or is this going to be the very thing that sinks them? You know?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, both my kids, uh, Kevin's 16 and a half, and he he came to me and said he wanted to learn to fly. And uh, Christina, the same thing. I didn't push her. She didn't? Yeah. She came to me when she graduated from college and said, I want to get my private. And when she got her private, she said, I want to keep going. And I said, go
2: for it. Did she grow up ma- making any sort of mention about this, or was it just the None. DNA kicked in it, you know, <laughs> after college?
1: Yeah. I, I used to take Kevin to fly-ins and the Luscombe, particularly the Luscombe fly-in, but uh, Christina was never interested. So, hmm. But now she is. Wow.
2: Did she ever tell you what changed?
1: Probably a boyfriend that broke up, she broke up with. Yeah. She decided, well, I got to do something and, you know, yeah. get this out of my head. Yep. Yeah. 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 And she found out she has a passion for it, so.
2: Yeah. It's weird because flying is, to me at least, it's sort of like a legalized drug addiction. it's probably probably more expensive but it's amazing people either they fall into it find their way into it um, and once you're involved it just gets worse (laughs) Yeah, it just gets worse you want to go higher faster carry more people do crazier things it just never ends it's it's
1: getting to be they want to go slower slower that's true because people want to get the tail draggers with the bush wheels on it and land in
2: 50 feet yeah go where other people can't go yeah camp out You know, it's, yeah. it's going to be really popular it is it's huge I mean watching the number of guys you know we have our friend Brandon over here building his plane yeah and we actually it's kind of fun I had the boys out and we helped him hang his wings oh yeah that was a I don't know if they recognized what was happening you know but to me putting the wings on a plane that's a pretty special deal you know no, he's got to have a nice airport. Yeah, he sure is. It's interesting to look at his plane being brand new and, you know, look at my plane being 65 years old. And, you know, you start looking at it going, man, you know, there's all these nice, neat things on there. But ultimately, I get in mine and it goes really fast. <laughs> so yeah. there's always that you go, man, I'd love to stamp out a new one, but, you know, I don't have half a million dollars or more at this yeah. point. Yeah.
1: Now it depends on what you want to do. In your case, where you use it for business, it's you're probably better off, but... Yeah. He's just going to take it up and uh, hit some cow pasture.
2: Yeah, he doesn't want to go fast. Yeah, it's a good good plane. Of course, he's going to have to learn how to fly with the wheel on the wrong end of the plane. Uh, no, that's not too hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was doing uh, aerobatic training, and so we were flying the Satabrias and the Super Decathlon out of uh, Palo Alto, with West Valley Flying Club. Oh. Yeah. And so I'd go up and... I remember my instructor, uh, this little guy, Daryl, would go out there and go flying, but every time I went out there, there was a fog layer. And so finally, you know, it was in the morning time, right? And so finally I was so irritated about not being able to fly, I'm like, screw this, let's go find an airplane with an instrument system. I want to get my instrument rating so I can get through this crap. Yeah. And that's what drove me to get the instrument rating. So. (coughs) I
1: think that's why we moved up here. My wife said, She's tired of four seasons in one day. Foggy in the morning, and then it gets nice and sunny. By three, it starts rolling in again, and it gets damp, and, you know, so that. Yeah. So
2: now you just get one. Hot. Yeah. Right? We're,
0: we're in your right? hangar now. It's probably
2: 90 degrees. It's uh, 98. 98. That's yeah. why you we were sweating. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: It's good. Yeah. Makes you drink more water. True. And so... What is it? So, you, you retire, So, so just so that I understand, in your retirement, you're outworking most people here that are in their working years. What is it that drives you? I
1: don't know. I just want to keep busy. Uh, it, I just sort of started doing it and then it got bigger and bigger. And, you know, so now I, I've kept. What I'm doing, I try not to do any more than I'm doing right now. <clears throat> so, but no, I, yeah, you know, I, I sort of look at my daughter and I watch her flying, you know, and, and she's putting three or four students a day. And I say, oh, she's got my work ethic, my work ethic I think. Yeah. Because she's really hustling. So,
2: it's kind of a blessing and a curse, I think.
1: Right. Yeah, but I I'm not one to sit around too much. So although as I get older, I don't mind stretching out on the couch a little bit.
2: Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Interesting. So the plans right now are keep doing what you're doing, and watch the daughter and the son pursue their aviation. Yeah. Interest. Yeah. So we're gonna go to Maui in the middle of next month for a week. Awesome.
1: Then go back to Thailand in uh, <coughs> January. I don't know how long we'll stay there.
2: Yeah.
1: Depends on my wife's job, how much time she can get off.
2: That makes sense.
1: The kids come with you? Uh, Christina's got to go to Maui with us, but uh, mm-hmm. I think Kevin's too busy flying for Sky West.
2: Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they're yeah, keeping him busy. Yeah. See, he likes that. Never a dull moment.
1: No, he's, he's, uh, he's only had two instances, I know, he, he hit 21 birds one day on takeoff.
2: That's not good.
1: Not good, no, I tore up one engine and, uh, tore off a pitot mast and, I so said, how do you know 21 birds? He said, oh, the tower sent the crew out there picking up the carcasses. And That's he, how many they got. Yeah, and then he showed me the pictures of the compressor. The stator blades on, on the number one engine were all bent. Jeez. There's a bird on the, wrapped around the left gear and blood all over the nose. Oh,
2: gosh. <laughs> So, a flock. He hit a flock. Yeah, he hit a yeah. flock. It's a, in it's
1: a Grand Forks, North Dakota, so there's a lot of birds up there. Yeah. He said God, he said the noise was just tremendous. Well, that was probably the engine being
2: unhappy, right? Yeah. Yeah. was some burping. So, did he just immediately make an emergency landing? <clears throat> they just turned around and came back. Yeah. yeah. Wow. You lost the engine?
1: No, as he says, still running when they landed.
2: Okay.
1: I don't know how much power is put up.
2: Yeah. I mean, if he wasn't stomping on the opposite rudder. Well, those things got hydraulics, right? What's he flying? Yeah.
1: That's a here. I don't know if it's a 200 or the 900. He flies. They've got different models. One carries 50 and the other carries 75.
2: Okay. That's enough to. I mean, goes pretty quick. Right? Yeah, but still get in and out of uh, smaller airports. Yeah, I think it's an A2 airplane. I'm not sure. But I think it is. Mm-hmm. He likes it for now. Oh, that's a great size, right? You're yeah. not dealing with the uh, waiting for 300 people to stuff themselves into the plane, right?
1: Yeah, he goes to little airports, so it's a lot more fun to me. And,
0: uh, yeah. That concludes our interview with Ken Lidwith. I really enjoyed talking to Ken. I have to apologize for the. Uh, mic noises. We were based in Ken's hangar and the microphones were both handheld. So we were sitting there kind of, um, holding the mics and, and kind of bouncing them around a bit. So lesson learned on my part, we'll address that in future podcasts. Ken also mentioned that his daughter has become a flight instructor. And so he wanted me to have some time to interview her and listen to her story. And so I'm going to try to find a time to do that. Um, Another interesting thing we didn't really get to talk about or maybe wasn't well explained during the interview was that uh, we were sitting in Ken's hangar and behind us were two different airplanes that he built effectively. Well, one was the um, Luscom that he had restored and then another one was one called the Mustang which he had built from plans completely from scratch. So Ken's quite a character, uh, really interesting guy and um, I'm very thankful to have him as a neighbor. Um, I like interviewing people from widely different backgrounds so Steve Throne was really interesting to me because he had this whole career in this uh kind of industrial science and physics world um and Ken comes from this completely different world of aviation so I'm going to try to continue to get different different people from different walks of life and capture their stories because that's just what I find interesting it's what I find um Compelling um, is just learning kind of how folks end up where they are. Um, but I think there are common threads through these different stories. Um, one of the threads I see is a somewhat strong sense of independent thought, independent uh, mindset, where in Steve's case, you saw um, somebody that said, Hey, I, I don't either, I don't like how this is being done and I'm going to do it differently, or I like what I see and I want to replicate it in Ken's case I think it's pretty simple he loved flying and loved airplanes and uh, so he walked down that path Um, but in both cases you see a consistent dedication to hard work and effort put in day after day uh, these guys get up and and get after it so really cool to see I hope these are enjoyable and I hope to bring you more with uh, some even crazier and uh, more diverse backgrounds as we continue to kind of just go through the contacts I've I've had the pleasure to come across uh, over the last few years. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll keep making this fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to reach out, uh, have any questions or have suggestions for who I should interview, my email address is austin at austinblanco.com. You can reach me at my website, which is austinblanco.com. Uh, or at the company webpage, which is advancedresearch-consulting.com. Thank you.